today I want to begin uh, what's going to be the first of six or eight sermons from the book of Psalms. And um, during the, the last two months, I, um, the whole sabbatical, I, I did something. I parked in the Psalms. I, um, I did something I just never normally do. I said, I'm not, unless I'm really directed by God, I'm not going to leave the Psalms. I'm just going to live there for two months. I'm just going to read and read and read and read and read and read in the Psalms. So I, I really did every single day. Maybe there was a, a day of exception when Brett and I were canoeing um, or something, but, uh, you know, um, in the pouring rain uh, when, when I didn't. But I basically parked in the Psalms um, during this time of sabbatical. And with the idea of my, my goal of sabbatical of eight weeks, people said, how was your vacation? I said, no, it wasn't a vacation. I took a vacation within the sabbatical. But a sabbatical had a real purpose. It was to refill my spiritual well. And so it was to be just focused on my spiritual life. And um, so anyways, I figured Psalms was the right place to do that. And so I spent my time, because if I got into the epistles, I think about how to build churches. I think about all the work part, because that's what it is. It's a lot of didactic teaching material. And I'd be like, how do I apply this and how do I do that? And I'm just being the Psalms. It's just about kind of human nature, um, human emotion. How do I relate with God? And as I spent this time in the Psalms, I've seen something that I really, I mean, I guess I would have seen some of it before, but I just saw so clearly these repeated themes. So what I began to do is I was journaling throughout my sabbatical, which is not natural for me. Some guys like, like Pastor Pete, he's just a writer. It's just not natural. I try to force myself to journal, and I really do because it's important to remember things. But I found these repeated themes coming up. And so I, in one page of my journal, I just had these themes from Psalms. I just kept writing down, writing down. And I'll be honest, I, I really had a, you guys know I'm a really pretty planned person. I, had a, I, I really knew what I was going to do when I came back from sabbatical, and it wasn't preaching on Psalms. I pretty much knew what I was going to do. I had it planned, and, and as I was coming to the end of the sabbatical and just saying, God, now where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? Um, I just felt compelled to the Lord to say, you know what? Spend some time talking about those themes that you saw in Psalms because those themes that were so ministering to me, um, I believe God wants to use those to minister to you. So for the next few weeks, I want to talk about, so I'm going to use a, the same start of every one as this, is God is, fill in the blank, God is something from the book of Psalms. That what is God, in a, and mostly tied to our relationship with God. God is, and then every week is going to be a different God is something. And so for today, we're going to look at this. God is, and I'm going to use the word my at first, you could put your word you in there. God is my only source of real satisfaction and contentment in this world. And that's contrary to what the world believes, but we see this in Psalms. God is your only source of genuine satisfaction and contentment in the world, in, the, in this world. As you go through the book of Psalms, you find psalms written by a whole bunch of different people. Some of you might think um, that psalms are written by David. Well, David did a part of the psalms. But you, feel, you find psalms written by David, and he did a bulk of them. Um, you find psalm, psalms written by Solomon. You find psalms written by Moses. You find psalms written by the sons of Korah. That's a large. If you ever look at your psalms on the top, it'll say who the author is. And if there's nothing there, it means they're called the anonymous psalms. There's about 50 of them that, that no one knows who wrote them. They're just compiled over centuries, you know, from Moses to Solomon. 
and the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were basically musicians. You know what's interesting? You music people? That's who God used to write. You know, he, this great book. The sons of Korah were the worship team basically under David and Solomon. They were a family of gifted musicians is what historians believe. And the sons of Korah wrote a bunch of these psalms. So all of the people who wrote the psalms were people, and there's a reason I'm talking about who wrote them, they were people who had status. They were people who had great resources. They were people who had great established relationships with God. In other words, they had everything really going on with the Lord. And they had really everything going on in the world. They, they could look and say, I've, I've had it all. And then evaluate their lives and say, what's really important? And so they're people, good people to listen to because they had it all. And these people, you know, these people with great status and great resources and great established relationships with God, in Psalms we often find them doing something that you would say they shouldn't have to do. We find them calling out to God to reveal himself in more tangible ways to them. Um, often we find the authors stating things like, you know, I, kind of this is the Mark version of the comp- compilation of, of, of a lot of their hearts, saying this, uh, I know who you are, God, and I know you are great, I know you can do everything. I know you've done great things in the past. And I know that, that, um, that you're all that really matters in the world, but I'm not really feeling you right now. And I want to feel you. I want more. And a lot of the Psalms are crying out. I want to show you that. Let's look at this in the, in the Psalms. Turn to Psalm 63. Because we've got to see the cry before we can get the answer. Psalm 63, we'll start there. Listen to this. We're going to read the first eight verses. Remember, this is a psalm of David. Mighty warrior, David. King, David. Got it all, David. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praise and joyful lips. with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. My hand, my right hand, your right hand upholds me. Here's David, the mighty warrior, the king, the man after God's own heart, a life of riches and victories and status. And I point that out again to say this. This guy has everything the world says ought to make you happy, content, and fulfilled. He has riches. He has status. He has won victories in everything that he's done, and yet he cries out to God, my soul thirsts you my flesh longs for you in a dry and a thirsty land where there is no water now my question is this is david really longing for a drink of water is that what david is talking about lord it's i'm in a desert and i need water no he's longing to experience the reality of god during this dry time in his life he has had everything the world could offer but he says this is a self-description My soul is thirsty. 
So I have it all, but my soul is thirsty. David had experienced God's fullness in the past. He knew, this is what he said in Psalm 63, he experienced that, God, your loving kindness is better than life. He had experienced that. He said, I know what's really most important. He knew that God's presence was better than anything else that life, anything else that this world could ever offer to him, and his soul was thirsty for that reality of God. But David wasn't alone in feeling. You say, well, that was just David being that way. David wasn't alone in feeling this way. Turn in your Bible to Psalm 84. Written by the sons of Korah, these worship-leading family. And listen to them. These are guys, they, they, live on the worship, they live on the worship team, Gary. These guys are playing their bass guitars. They're worshiping. So they're living in this engaged life. They're writing songs. You know, they didn't play the bass, though, Richie. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> they all had bass guitars. But listen, you know, it's important. These are the guys who are living it. They're employed in worship ministry. So they're spending their days singing songs to God and writing songs to God. You know, they're the, they're the who's, who would it be today? That's their 10th Avenue North, right, Brent? That's who they are. Um, Psalm 84, these worship leaders, sons of Korah. Listen to what they say. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. Listen, my soul longs that even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts. I'm, I'm envious of the, of the birds who are living in the, in the temple, in the tabernacle. My king and my God. Verse 4. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion going towards God. Verse 6, passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring, and their early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayers. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold your shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God then dwell in the tents of the wicked, for the Lord God is the sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. Do you hear it? Do you hear that they express the same feeling as David? The same thirst. Verse 2, my soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. They find themselves, he's talking about wanting to go to the temple. And they find themselves in the same place as David, men who knew God. They had experienced his presence. They were employed in worshiping him, yet they longed for more. Their flesh cries out to experience the reality of the living God in their daily lives. They long to be in the house of God, in the tabernacle, it says in verse 1. Because that represents for them the presence of God. Saying, I want to be with God. And they are saying, I long for God's presence. Like David, they experienced in the past God's fullness. They knew that. What did he say? A day in your courts. A day in your presence, Lord. A moment in your presence is better than a thousand anywhere else. You could say it in any other way. A day in your presence is greater than, and you fill in the blank, anything that you think brings satisfaction. 
Anything you say, well, a day in, in, in the presence of the Lord, a moment is better than a cruise. It's better than a whatever. It's better than a Mercy Me concert. It's better than anything. It's a day in your presence. And it's better than voting on the lake. It's better than anything. A day in your court is better than anything else, a thousand elsewhere. That experiencing the presence of God is better than being anywhere else or doing anything else. And their souls cry out for the living God. That's what we see in these people's lives. Church, family, do you find yourself ever in that place where you know the goodness of God? You have experienced His presence. You have um, you have had some mountaintop experiences where God was so incredibly real and present. He'd manifest His reality to you. But then many days, and I would say this, really most days, your soul is thirsty for more of God. And you want to walk in a greater reality of the relationship. You know that you have with the Lord. You know it's there, but you want to experience it more. You see, you believe that Jesus was telling the truth when he spoke to his disciples. When he said, you know what, it's better that I go away, because when I go away, I will ascend to the Father, and then the Father will send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will come, and he'll be another comforter, and he won't only just be with you, he will be in you. You believe that. You know it's true, but you want to experience it. You say, God, I know it's true, but how does that feel? What should it look like? Am I missing something? Because my soul is thirsty. I want something more. And if you say yes, that you feel that way, sometimes, maybe a lot of times, I would say this with you, I feel the same way a lot. That was the goal of my sabbatical, was to try to figure out what should that feel like? What should, how should I address that? During my sabbatical, I went on a five-day silent prayer retreat at a, at a Jesuit retreat house that, that the, the fishers had told me about. And I, I went there, and, and I went on that retreat um, really asking this question, Lord, show me how to better quench that soul thirst. Because I'd been parked in the Psalms before I went, and I was identifying with David and the sons of Korah and so many others and saying, they felt that way, I feel that way. God, show me how to better quench the soul thirst that I have. You know, and... And, and, and I've been parked in Psalms, and, and I was saying, you know what, God, I'm not abnormal feeling this way. And if I feel this way, I think they feel this way. Our congregation has to feel this way. Everybody's feeling, Lord, help me through this. And this is what I knew. I knew that God was always with me. And I have experienced him in so many profound ways in my life. I knew this to be real. It wasn't a doubted question of saying, God, are you there? Saying, I know but the Lord is with me and His Spirit is in me. I know that, but what, how come my soul thirsts? I knew I'd experienced God in miraculous ways. I'd experienced so many times God's miraculous divine healings. I'd experienced God's miraculous divine financial provisions. I've experienced God's miraculous divine answers to prayer. I've experienced God's miraculous divine ministry so many times in my life. A life history of mountaintop experiences. But I want to more fully experience him in what I want to call the in-between times. And that's what I was hungry for. That's what I think we see here. Experiencing God in the in-between times, those times between the spiritual mountaintops where I can write in my journal and say, I experienced God in a miraculous way today. But today is just a normal day. I'm just, I'm just punching the clock and doing my work. And how do I experience him today? You see, church, 
your spiritual life. This is, this is remember, I'm kind of simple-minded, so everything's got to be a word picture to me. Your spiritual life is, I think, kind of like an EKG. You know what an EKG is? They hook you up to the things, the little, the little um, electrodes, thank you, and, they, and they, I did check in to make sure I was saying this right with Suzanne. Then, and you get the printout, and it goes up, up peaks, valleys, and it's going up and down. I don't know, does it make noises like that? I'm not sure. But it goes up and down, up and down, up and down. And your spiritual life is kind of like that. It has peaks and it has valleys, but it has in-between times. When it's not a peak and it's not a valley. And most of life is in the in-between time. And it's easy to see God on the peaks. Which, by the way, if you're honest, the peaks are usually valleys in which God has intervened in your life and turned the valley into a peak. That when you look back across the EKG of your life and you see the peaks, they're the mountaintops, they're the great experiences of God, it's generally because there was a problem in your life and God showed up in a miraculous way and he turned a valley into a peak. So you were sick and God healed you and the valley became a peak. Well, it's easy to experience God in those peak times, in those mountaintop experiences. But what about the in-between times, which I think is really, spiritually speaking, most of the time. Most of life is lived in the in-between times. How do we experience, how do we feel the presence of God, which is the only place of real satisfaction and contentment, according to the writers of Psalms, who, who say, we've had it all, and we're telling you, going to this place, going to that place, doing this thing, won't do it. Only the presence of God will bring real satisfaction and contentment in the in-between times. How do we experience that? Well, in this two months, I really feel like the Lord revealed two things about this to me. I want to share them with you. Two things that I think are really important to experience them in the in-between time. The first thing is this. first part is just we're talking about, about here's, here's the dilemma or here's the reality. I think the Lord has said, but I want to show you. I want to show you that I'm really there in the in-between. And this is how the Lord's been speaking to me about how to experience Him in the in-between, how to, how to know I'm experiencing Him in the in-between. And the first thing is this. This is the starting point. And it's not at all where I would have thought to start with. But it's where the Lord ministered to me and where I believe the Lord wants to minister to you today. And it's this. You have to really believe based on God's Word, not based on Mark Larson or based on your experience or my experience. You have to really believe based on God's Word that God loves you unconditionally and he wants to have an abiding relationship with you. You have to really believe that. And I find a lot of people don't really believe that. That God unconditionally loves you. He loves you the same every day. He doesn't get mad at you because you blow it. And today he's going he's gonna to act like we act as people. That I'm mad at you so I'm going to ignore you. I'm mad at you. I'm going to give you a silent treatment. I'm mad at you. God does not act that way. Don't degrade God by comparing Him to people. God is above that. Scripture says God loves you unconditionally. His love does not ebb and flow. And He wants to have an abiding relationship with you. And I would say this, you won't experience God in the in-between times. I mean, feel Him in the in-between times. Generally, if you don't believe that God wants you to experience Him that he loves you and he wants you to experience him. You will settle for something, because I've settled for it a lot of times. You will settle for knowledge without reality. You will settle for theology 
without feeling. And God will let you settle for that. He really will. You're still going to heaven, but he'll let you settle for that. But God wants more with you than that. In fact, he's proved it in the most dramatic and costly way. He sent his son Jesus to die in your place for a reason, so that you could be reconciled with him and have a real relationship with him. And he sent his own spirit to actually live in you when you became born again. He's saying, I want to be in a real relationship. He's proved his unconditional love for you and his desire to be connected to you already. He proved it. It's settled. It doesn't need to be debated. You don't have to wonder about it. You don't need to question it. You don't have to say in that dry time, God, do you really love me? It's settled. Don't ask the question ever again. He does. He does. During my prayer retreat, God led me to a beautiful picture of the depth of of the love that he has for his people and his desire for intimacy. And I want you to look at it with me today. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 49. Israel, and this, what we find here is Israel is complaining, which they were really good at, which a lot of us, starting with me, can be really good at. They're complaining that God wasn't there. Where are you, God? You've forsaken us, is what they're saying. They didn't feel Him. They weren't experiencing Him. They said, the people of the past felt you. They experienced you. But where are you now? We're not experiencing you. And the Lord answers by telling them how much He loves them and that He could never forget or forsake them. Isaiah 49, verses 14 through 16. Listen to what He says. He says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. And the Lord has forgotten me. I mean, where are you, God? That's, that's not a whole lot different than David in Psalm 63. My soul thirsts for you. Where are you? Verse 15. This is his answer to the person saying, where are you? Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these, listen, he said, even these may forget. But I will never forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. He gives two word pictures here of the depth to describe the depth of his unconditional love for his people. First, he says he loves his people. And listen, that includes you and me. If you are a child of God today in the new covenant, the Bible says you have been grafted in. He just draws a picture of, a, of an olive tree, which represents Israel. And he says branches have been broken off, and a wild olive branch has been grafted in and put into the tree, the Gentiles. So if you're a non-Jew and you know Jesus and you're born again, you're in the family of God. You're in his family. So he's speaking that to you also here. And he says that he loves his people more than a nursing mother loves her child. You know what? He says something that to us seems impossible. He says it's possible for a mother to forget her child. Now, we can't even comprehend that. He's a nursing mother, and he says, could they forget? And you want to think he's going to say, did you really pay attention to what it said? You thought probably it was going to say, well, of course a mother can't forget. That's not what he said. He said, they can forget, but I won't. 
He's drawing a comparison. He's saying, you look at the unfathomable concept of a mother's love for a child. Humanly speaking, I don't think there's any greater expression of love than a mother's love, a nursing mother for her child. He says this, but you know what? They can even forget the child, but I'll never forget you. He says, God's love is even more than that. But he doesn't stop there. He gives a second picture of the depths of God's love for you if you know him as Savior. He says this. He says, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hand. You know when you don't want to forget something? What do you do? You write it in the palm of your hand. Most of you in here at some point had some girlfriend or boyfriend's name. Pete, at some point you probably wrote, I don't know, Doris. And you looked at it and you said, Doris. Isn't that kind of what a wedding ring is? It says Suzanne to me. It's in, my, it's in the palm of my hand. It's inscribed, not written, but, but it really is. She's got a verse inscribed inside of it that's right in the palm of my hand. And God, God says this. He says, listen, he has inscribed you on the palms of his hand. Your name is written in his hand. You are ever before him. He is continually reminded of his love for you. That's how much God loves you. He's continually reminded of you and his love for you, which is greater than a mother's love for a nursing child. He says, that's how much I love you. Friends, the first step in experiencing the presence of God is to know that he loves you unconditionally. Listen to this, because some of you need to hear this today. He loves you with your faults and shortcomings. He loves you with your failings and sinfulness not in spite of them. You know how I would have usually described the love of God for many years of my life? That God loves me, and I would have said this, in spite of the fact that I mess up all the time. That's not the picture of God's love. He loves you with your faults and your shortcomings, with your failings and your sinfulness. Now, yes, He wants you to grow and he wants you to develop, and he wants you to change. And like he says to the woman caught in adultery, now I forgive you, I don't condemn you, now go and sin no more. That's his plan, that we walk in greater godliness all the time. I'm not trying to dismiss living godliness and God's plan for our sanctification. He wants that for us. But God loves you as you are. You don't need to change. He loves you where you are right now. And listen, it's his desire to be with you. He proved it on the cross. He reconciled man and God. When you start at that starting point, what happens is you remove all the self-imposed barriers that can keep you from experiencing God. Because what normally happens is we have a barrier between us and God because we think God isn't really desiring to be with me today because I didn't do my 30-minute devotion with God this morning. Have you ever done this? You ever come into your time with God after maybe a very hectic week that you were very busy and you feel condemned because you did not spend time with God the way you had vowed you would spend time with God and you spend your time apologizing to God that you had not been with God for the days before? We've all done it. That's a self-imposed barrier to living in the reality that connected us with God. God says, I love you no matter what. I love you if you meet with me. I love you if you don't meet with me. He said, don't waste my... I really felt years ago the Lord said to me, stop wasting my time apologizing. 
Just enjoy me. And I'm like, wow. Because I felt, I, God, I'm so sorry. I just didn't do it the way I promised I would do it. God loves us unconditionally with your faults, with your shortcomings, with your failings, with your sinfulness. He wants to help you get better for your sake. But he loves you unconditionally. When you start there, you remove all the self-imposed barriers that keep you from experiencing God because you don't even expect it, that he wants to meet with you. God loves you, and he wants you to experience his presence so you can have real satisfaction and real contentment. He wants the best for you. The guys writing the Psalms, they said, we know what the best is. The best isn't running off and doing something. The best isn't to be in the the tents of the wicked. The best isn't to be somewhere else. He said, it's just to be in your courts, in your presence is what he's talking about. To really be in your presence, God. And God, if they understood what the best is, and he loves you more than a mother loves her nursing child, and you're inscribing his hands, and don't you think he wants the best for you? He wants the best for you. So that has to be the starting place. This realization of his unimaginable love and his great passion to want to just be with me. No barriers. He wants to be with you. And with that as your starting place, then we move on to the second thing that we need to more fully experience the Lord's presence in the in-between times. And it's this. And I'm going to say this with honestly believing I'm right with, with, with the last... Eight weeks of thinking about it. It's not off the cuff, had to write a sermon. Because the conclusion I came to here, I really believe will help you, and I really believe it's accurate and it's right. That this. Some of us in Pentecostal charismatic circles, you're going to get a little edgy with me right now. You're going to go, oh, well, wait a minute, what about the signs and wonders? Those are tend to be mountaintops. And those, those tend to be infrequent. So we can look at those. I'm not saying we don't experience God in the mountaintops. We don't experience God in the, in, the, in the miraculous. We do. But what about the in-between times? I believe the primary way God intends for us to experience His presence in our daily lives is by the fruit of the Holy Spirit being manifest in and through you. I'm going to explain that. You're going to, it's going to be made, hopefully much more meaningful than it ever has been to you before. But the primary way we experience God's presence in our daily lives, is by the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and I'll explain that, being manifest in and through your life in a way that you experience it, that you recognize it. Do you remember a while ago, um, all my preaching was a while ago because I was gone for eight weeks, but a while ago, about a couple weeks before I was gone, it was Easter actually, I talked to you about the need to tend the spiritual fire in your life. Remember that? A lot of you said, man, that, that helped me see that. You know, uh, I talked about your need for your spiritual life is like a fire and it needs to be continually tended to keep it burning brightly, to experience it. We need to build it up in the morning and we need to add logs to it throughout the day, right? That word picture says that's how I experience the reality of God in my life. Well, if we do that, what will we experience? Scripture gives us a very clear answer. Turn to one set last section in the Scriptures this morning, John 15. When you get this connection, you're going to go, wow. This is, what God's, this is what, how I experience God. This is God's plan for me to experience Him. John 15, starting verse 1. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So I is who? Jesus. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And that's the condition of a lot of Christians right there. They're not abiding, so they dry up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and are burned. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. So prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I also love you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Now, another way to say, tend the fire in your life is to say, abide in Christ. Abide with Jesus. John says, so in other words, keep that flame burning. John says, if you will abide in Christ, you will produce spiritual fruit. And he gives examples here that if you abide in Christ, you will experience, he just does two of the fruit that that Galatians explains the spiritual fruit. He says you will have love and you will have joy. They just said, right, if you abide in me, you'll have love, you'll experience my love, and you'll experience my joy. So I will give you my joy. You'll have those things in your life. So abiding results in fruit, right? Follow me so far? The main way we experience God in the in-between times is as we experience his presence within us manifesting itself in the fruit of the Spirit. He said in John 15, you can do nothing on your own. Some of you are real good at accomplishing things on your own. He's talking about spiritual fruit here, and he's saying you can do nothing on your own. You cannot accomplish spiritual fruit on your own. So when I experience joy in a joyless world, I am experiencing the reality of God in my life. It's beyond natural. It's something only God can give. He says, I will give you my joy. So when I experience joy in a joyless world, I am experiencing the manifestation of God in my life. And when I experience peace in a chaotic world, when you watch the news, which I watch less and less of all the time, honestly, and you see the whole world blowing up, and a lot of Christians are going to plug their nose in a fox and watch it day and night and say, oh, it's all working out, you know, the whole end's coming... You know what? I'm not saying you shouldn't be informed. But when you live in a chaotic world all the time and you experience peace and you don't get all frenzied and you're just at peace and you go, yeah, the world's going to blow up. Okay. I'm one in whom Christ dwells and delights and I live in the stable kingdom of God. Whatever happens, happens. And that's not a, that's, that's a real peace. When I experience real peace in a chaotic world, I'm experiencing the reality of God in my life. Peace is not natural. It's not flesh. It's spirit. During my 
time off. My mother, as you know, was very ill. And we're in the hospital, and there was a couple of days where I honestly believed she was probably going to die. She was intubated, um, you know, breathing tube, um, had her sedated to the point, I don't know if you can say it, you put in a coma or whatever, but basically an artificial coma so that for about two days she was in that condition. And I was very, very, very peaceful. A lot of family members, brothers, sisters, parents, were very chaotic. And I looked at that and I said, how come they're all spinning around and I'm just kind of there? And they referred me and said, oh, Mark was the rock. I'm like, no, Mark's usually a hothead. You know, Mark's like, get it done, you know. What do we got to do here? No, just really peaceful. Why? Why? When I experience peace in a chaotic world, I'm experiencing, I'm feeling the reality of God in my life because the fruit of peace is not natural. It's not flesh. It's spirit. The fruit of the spirit, Galatians says, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are not characteristics that we can invent, that we can work harder to accomplish. These are qualities that result from God's presence in our lives. And friends, these qualities, this is the key, these qualities are where real satisfaction and real contentment are found in your life. Real Holy Spirit peace. Real Holy Spirit joy. That's why He is the only source of real contentment and real satisfaction. It's only found in Him. These qualities are where real satisfaction and real contentment are found in your life. The world offers all kinds of counterfeits, but they don't satisfy you. I was reading I think it was, uh, C.S. Lewis on my sabbatical, and he said something interesting. He said, hurry isn't a tool of the devil. Hurry is the devil. He's talking about a hurriedness that the devil wants our lives to live by so that we don't, and he's the reason, that we, that we fill our lives with so many other things that we don't even know we're not content. That we mask our discontentment with activity. So your calendar is filled, every moment's filled, so that you don't have a minute because you just keep running because it masks the fact that you, if you're so quiet enough, you recognize sometimes you feel like David. You say, I, my soul is thirsty. And God says the way that you feel, you quench that thirst, is you recognize his presence in your life. And the way you recognize his presence in your life is by realizing the reality of the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. So that when you feel joy in a joyless world, you go, God is with me. When you feel peace, when you shouldn't be at peace, you go, I'm experiencing the reality of the living, risen Savior in my life right now. You know, you can run everywhere and do everything and stay so busy and preoccupied that you mask the thirst in your soul for a while, maybe years, but real satisfaction and real contentment in the in-between times only comes from abiding in Christ, from tending the flame continually, because that's how you feel God as the fruit of the Spirit is developed in your life. So you feel content. You feel kind. 
when you ought to, when you say, but 10 years ago I would have yelled at that guy. How come today I was kind to him? And when that happens, what happens is you go, wow. God's in the in-between. God's right here. Sometimes the in-between is the grocery line. The thing that used to make you crazy, now you're at peace. And you go, God is real. In my, and this is what happens. When the reality strikes in the moment when you go, wow, I'm experiencing God, everything changes. You're just like, wow, it's, it becomes a mountaintop. You go, God is here. I'm not alone. It's, I'm not thirsty anymore. The recognition becomes the quenching of the thirst that you recognize you're really with God. Friends, so that when we abide in Jesus, He causes His fruit to grow and to be manifest. When we experience that, we're experiencing His presence. And that's the primary way we feel Him and experience Him in the in-between times. That's what He has for us. You know, maybe you're here today and you've never one time in your life met Jesus as your Savior. You know it's, You know that you haven't because your soul is thirsty. You know you need God. Here's a promise from God. You can come to Him today through Jesus. But maybe, friends, you're here today and you do know Jesus. But you filled your life with everything but abiding in Christ. You're busy as busy can be. Sure, you do your devotions. You got your one-minute Bible and your, your book next to the toilet. You know, you, right? You do it. This is being real. But you're not really abiding. And if you allow yourself to slow down long enough, you know that you, you, you know how thirsty you really are spiritually. I just tell you this. Put everything else aside. That's why God designed the Sabbath. To set a day aside for rest and worship and reflection. That's why he said, fill this day with me and not with everything else. Put everything aside today and come back to your first love to Jesus. Make him your first love again. Clear the busyness out of your day today and out of your life and abide with Jesus because it's the only place of real satisfaction and real contentment. Amen? Stand with me this morning. We're going to close in prayer this morning. I would say this. If you don't know Jesus, you can today. Invite the whole congregation. You would just close your eyes with me for a moment as we pray. I would just speak this to you if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. If in the quietness of your heart right now, you would just pray like this. Just pray, dear Jesus, I know that I need you today. I'm thirsty for something real. I'm thirsty for a real relationship with the living God. And today, this day, I open up my life to you. And I receive you into my life. Make me brand new. Wash away my sins. And help me to experience your unconditional love today. So Lord, I... I put the past behind me and from this day forward I say I want to walk with you. So I receive you today as my Savior and Lord. Friends, you pray that prayer. Nothing magical about the words. But Scripture says that the Lord receives you. 
And I challenge you, if you prayed that, you received Christ in your life, tell somebody that you know is a believer, somebody you know knows Jesus, today before the sun goes down, tell them that today you've given your life to Jesus. Now I just want to close by inviting anybody who wants to to come and spend some time around our altars, some time praying. Maybe God's dealing with you about hurriedness. He's dealing with you and saying, you've been saying, God, I'm thirsty and I want to get filled. If that's you today, I encourage you to come and to spend some time with the Lord in prayer before you go. When you feel dismissed by the Holy Spirit, then quietly make your way out of the sanctuary and have a wonderful day in Jesus. And I can't wait till we see you again next Sunday. But spend some time with the Lord if He's speaking to you so that you can experience real life in Him today. God bless you, Jesus.